You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And what we've seen over the decades is that self-attestation has not been working. And so um, the government is now sort of, I guess, flexing its muscle and sharpening its teeth. And so the introduction of the CCFI is really a reflection of that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story about fraudulently collected metadata. I've got the story of a class action suit against SolarWinds. And later in the show, my conversation with Matt Malarkey of Titania. We're sharing insights on the Civil Fraud Initiative. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, let's uh, get things rolling here. Why don't you start things off for us? So my article this week is a big picture article. It comes from The Guardian by Johanna Buian. Uh, and I like to think of this article as kind of a dissertation or thesis for our podcast. <laughs> okay. Not that our podcast is ending. Uh, <laughs> it will go on in, in perpetuity. Right. Uh, but this article was a good hook for sort of all of the things we've talked about mm. as it comes to electronic surveillance and how tech companies and the government can get a hold of your data. Okay. So the hook for this article, uh, which is entitled, How Can U.S. Law Enforcement Agencies Access Your Data? Let's Count the Ways. Uh, it's something that I know you discussed on the CyberWire podcast. There was a hack of Apple and Meta, the parent company of Facebook, where hackers obtain information on users of those services by forging an emergency legal request. That is a mechanism where law enforcement agencies can demand or compel information from tech companies to hand over location and subscriber information. Hmm. It's written into our statutes. Uh, it's supposed to be used in the case of a life-threatening emergency, uh, something that's doesn't have the time to go through your standard judicial process. Right. Of course, this was completely fraudulent. There was no such emergency, and these hackers were still able to obtain individual user data. So let me just back up here for a second. So we have hacker bad guys... Yes. Uh, they go to a company like Apple or Meta and pretending to be law enforcement, they say there's an emergency here. And because of that emergency, we need this information. And the big tech companies, believing that they are actually talking with legitimate law enforcement, turn it over. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so if you are Apple or Meta, uh, you are 
generally going to be inclined to comply with such a request, Mm -hmm. uh, largely because it is an emergency. Each of these companies has their own standards for determining whether the request actually constitutes an emergency. Mm. For the most part, from their perspective, if they actually believe it's an emergency, they are not going to contest this in a court of law just because it would be bad publicity if there were actually an emergency. Mm-hmm. If they needed somebody's location data because this person was a fleeing suspect uh, and this person was out to commit more crimes and uh, was out to victimize more individuals and it was Apple or Meta that withhold withheld crucial data, that would be very bad publicity for these companies. Sure. But there is this legal mechanism that allows this type of emergency warrantless collection. Not only does it not require a warrant, doesn't require a subpoena, uh, and doesn't really require any sort of judicial sign-off. That led to The Guardian exploring all the other ways in which the government and private entities can collect a person's data. Uh, And they went through a list of them that I thought was very compelling and all-encompassing. Uh, So they started with law enforcement accessing your physical device. They can subpoena uh, to – get a subpoena to access your device. They do need a warrant because of Riley v. California to unlock your phone and access the content on your device. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they still can do that. Um, There are instances when we're talking about border searches Mm. where appeals courts have ruled that even without any individualized suspicion, the government can unlock your phone and, and view your data, your content. Uh, There are all different types of law enforcement requests for different types of metadata, whether that's from ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the FBI, or other law enforcement agencies. Uh, There are uh, different mechanisms in which law enforcement can obtain information through a bunch of different statutes. So uh, there are administrative subpoenas, uh, warrants. Many of these uh, requests comes, come with gag orders, uh, particularly those relating to national security when we're talking about something like national security letters, which means the company that receives the request has to hand over the information, and they are not allowed to discuss even the fact that they received this request with mm-hmm. anybody mm. except perhaps their own uh, attorneys. Uh, they talk about geofence warrants, uh, which we've talked about a number of times, where law enforcement seeks device information of all the users in a certain place uh, at a particular time. Uh, or uh, something I don't think we really have talked about, a keyword search warrant, hmm. which is not individualized. It allows law enforcement to access the information of any person who searched for certain terms or keywords within a time period, certain time period on a search engine. <laughs> right. How, uh, how to hide a body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, that would be the most obvious example. Right. Uh, but there are all types of examples that aren't quite as obvious. Yeah. Um, where it's something like a bank was robbed and you use mm. a keyword uh, search warrant to for people searching directions to X bank that was burglarized. I see. Uh, That's kind of a summary of what goes on in the public sector from the government, but then there are data brokers. Uh, So we have this entire private sector industry of collecting data. Uh, They describe it in this article as a shadowy network of data brokers that operate under the radar but have easy access to our data, such as our location, purchase history. That's very valuable data. They sell it to entities to help target advertising uh, for us. Um, They collect that personal data from our social media profiles, public records, 
uh, like I said, applications. Um, and most of the time, the user, him or herself, doesn't really know whether a data broker has been collecting information. Hmm. And, you know, that's obviously something that, that we've talked about on our podcast. Yeah. They talk about surveillance tech companies, Clearview AI. They scrape information from the internet, from social media sites, and feed it into algorithms. Sometimes they sell their services to law enforcement, and law enforcement can't identify people because of the scraping done by companies like uh, Clearview AI. Amazon's smart doorbell ring is another example. They give special access to law enforcement Mm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so that uh, police can monitor and request ring footage from consumers. I think we covered that story. The panopticon. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then there's uh, the the final thing they talk about here is data sharing. So the fact that everything that's collected at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level is shared among uh, each tier of government. Mm -hmm. So if a local DMV collects information, maybe they've obtained your driver's license picture. If the I obviously they've obtained your driver's license picture. <laughs> right. Uh, but that's something that they might share with the FBI as part of a broader federal investigation. Hmm. Uh, if there is a state prosecution of a crime and somebody has been targeted by some type of FBI surveillance, DHS surveillance, CBP, Customs and Border Protection surveillance, that can be shared with state entities. Uh, And there are data sharing services from companies like Palantir, which we've also talked about. Uh, That creates a centralized network of digital records where law enforcement can potentially identify chronic offenders, people who are frequently the target of law enforcement investigations. They are people of interest. And law enforcement partners at all levels, from local police departments to the FBI, can access their information. I guess the point is somebody is always is always watching. Uh, if you think your data is not being collected or obtained, then you're not being creative enough in your thinking. <laughs> uh, because as we've seen, and this article tells us, there are so many different ways in uh, the, our legal system and in the practices of our technology companies that can lead to your data getting collected. So I think it's just hmm. a was a really interesting reminder, big picture. Uh, what our government and what our private industry is capable of doing with our private information. You know, swinging back around to the uh, original topic here, which is this uh, Apple and Meta um, giving away information under false pretenses, you know, them being fooled by fraudsters. Do you know, is there any, um, I don't know, retrospective auditing of this? Does anybody go back after the fact you know, if law enforcement says we have an emergency request, is anybody going back and looking at those after the fact to see if they were indeed emergencies? I think it, it happens at the individual company level. They have their own internal audits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that probably led to them discovering this in the first place. Mm. Uh, so there is sort of some internal practice, but there's not really much that law enforcement itself does, nor does the federal government, to my mind, really keep track of how often this is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the reasons this story resonated is because the federal government was not aware in time that these hackers were using this power of these emergency requests uh, to go to companies like Meta and Google. So I think all the enforcement mechanisms are internal here. Um, but maybe 
the government itself, maybe through the inspector generals, uh, inspectors general of these various agencies, it might be it might behoove them to look through all of these emergency requests uh, to at least try to identify how many of them were legitimate. Now, the problem with that is you'd have to go through the emergency requests allegedly submitted by every law enforcement agency, whether that's local, state, or federal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of that is not under federal jurisdiction. So even if you had the best inspectors general in the world, that's only part of the puzzle. Really, it, it does depend on the companies themselves. They're the ones who receive these these requests. Uh, and from their perspective, you know, I don't think it's necessarily in their short-term interest to go under the hood. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to reveal that they've been uh, completely had by uh, hackers on the internet. Yeah. I don't think that speaks well of their own security protocols. No, I, I'm just trying to, I mean, I could, I guess I can imagine a defense attorney uh, saying that, um, you know, the information that was gathered to convict my client uh, was done so under the pretense that there was emergency circumstances. And uh, clearly, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that was not the case. Now, that would certainly be a wise strategy for a defense attorney. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for your hypothetical defense attorney, in the vast majority of cases, there are legitimate requests. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't have any necessarily, unless there was a story like this, uh-huh. uh, you wouldn't have any indication that the emergency request was fraudulent. Mm. Uh, if you did, that would be a great way to get your case thrown out in court because everything <laughs> that comes after that would be fruit of the poisonous tree, meaning that evidence would have to be suppressed. Mm. See, I missed my calling, Ben. My, uh, this is just the kind of creativity that our legal system needs to throw sand in the gears, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, the problem is all of the best defense attorneys – uh, either work for clients with a lot of money or are in fictional TV shows. I see. Uh, <laughs> right. So they're so they're created by writers who who have that creative mindset. Yeah. Where <laughs> if you talk to most defense attorneys, they're just trying to make it through their day. Yeah. Do the best on behalf of their clients. Sure. <laughs> sure. Especially public defenders. I mean, you have hundreds of cases yeah. uh, in your in, in your portfolio, and you know, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't don't mean to make light of it either, but uh, uh, it's interesting to think about. All right, well, my story this week uh, comes from SC Magazine. Uh, this is an article written by Derek B. Johnson, uh, and it's titled "Court Denies SolarWinds Bid to Throw Out Breach Lawsuit." Um, basically, uh, a Texas judge has dismissed claims that the former SolarWinds CEO uh, Kevin Thompson. Uh, was personally liable for deceiving investors about the company's cybersecurity, but beyond that has allowed a class action lawsuit, which is filed against the company, its executives, and investors uh, to proceed. And this is all in the wake of the 2020 Orion breach. Um, They've also sort of collected a bunch of different class action suits together to to make one big one, I suppose. what really attracts my attention here, Ben, and, and what I'm curious on your take on this is uh, the personal responsibility of, of people like the chief information security officer or, or the chief security officer. You know, these folks being on the hook for the liability here that they did not have proper cybersecurity methods in place. Yeah, I mean, personal liability in cases like this, when we're talking about uh, defrauding one's investors comes down to 
whether you had actual knowledge that what you were saying was wrong. Hmm. Uh, so it seems like, from what this this Texas judge is saying, the CEO, Kevin Thompson, had general knowledge of SolarWinds cybersecurity practices, but wasn't intimately involved in day-to-day protocols, you know, recognizing their, their uh, vulnerabilities. He was an overseer, mm-hmm. uh, so he didn't have intimate knowledge was with what was going on behind the scenes. The chief information security officer is obviously privy to all of that information. So when he makes representations uh, to investors, he knows, or at least uh, in a legal sense, should have known that these risks existed. Uh, now, we are not at the point in this case where a court has definitively determined the legal liability of anybody here. Uh, this was a preliminary hearing on a motion to dismiss. Mm-hmm. So they dismissed the claim against the CEO. As it relates to the CISO and everybody else involved, they are just simply allowing the case to go forward. And what's going to come out in court is whether there's enough evidence to show that these individuals, the CISO and others, people who are involved in the security operations, knowingly uh, misled their investors. Mm. And that's going to have to get into, it's going to be up to the finder of fact here, the jury or, or the judge, if it's a bench trial, as to how much these individuals knew about their own uh, security vulnerabilities, how much of their vulnerabilities were foreseeable, how much of the hack was uh, a matter of circumstance or bad luck, and how much was it negligence? Right. Uh, but it does. I, I think the broader lesson here is you can be personally liable if you have actual knowledge of your own vulnerabilities and you have misrepresented your own organization's cybersecurity posture. That means you could be subject to liability. It's still a relatively high standard. Mm -hmm. Um, There's going to have to be a lot of evidence that comes out in discovery to establish proof. But at least, you know, this case and others have shown us just because a you know, just just because a person has been named doesn't mean they are above the legal liability uh, threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the argument that the plaintiffs are making here is that uh, that be, for cost cutting reasons, uh, they didn't have adequate cybersecurity measures in place. That they didn't want to spend the money on it because ultimately, uh, you know, at some point they want they would want to sell the company so they would have uh, you know low expenses which would make the company more valuable uh, and so on and so forth um, I, I there's a part of me that can't help wondering like suppose the breach had never happened right mm-hmm. time passes they go to sell the company right because they have not spent as much as they otherwise would have on cybersecurity the company is indeed more valuable. All of these shareholders make more money. Everybody's happy. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the dream <laughs> right. world here that everybody was foreseeing. Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, the the dream reality never really comes into practice. Right. And bad things do happen if you have vulnerabilities in your system. Yeah. I mean, it could have been a hurricane, right? And they didn't have adequate insurance. It could have been, you know, any number of things that they should have insured themselves against or put in place uh, you know, protections against uh, this happened to be cybersecurity. 
Right. You know, I think the key here is that they held themselves out as authorities on SolarWinds cybersecurity measures. Mm. Meaning, it's not just that they tried to cut corners and keep costs low to the benefit of themselves and their investors. It's that, it's that they ensured their investors that they had taken proper uh, cybersecurity measures to protect their data. I see. Again, we don't we don't know what the evidence is going to tell us as to whether that's the case. Right. That's what the plaintiffs are alleging. That's what the plaintiffs are alleging. But yeah. we do know that you can be held liable if you are in charge of cybersecurity for your organization and you knowingly make false representations to your investors. Uh, and I think that's kind of the broader lesson that comes from this case. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a chief security officer, what does this mean for me? If you're a chief security officer, that means one of two things. Uh, it means you should not make misrepresentations to your investor, uh, to your investors about your own cybersecurity practices. Uh, it means you should always tell the truth to the best of your knowledge in any public proceeding. You should also do that in any private proceeding, but there are fewer legal consequences uh, right. <laughs> if that's if that's not uh, on the record. Yeah. And that it benefits your organ, even if it doesn't in the short term benefit your organization's bottom line to take robust cybersecurity measures to protect your data. The consequences of not doing so can be severe for both the company and can subject you as a chief information security officer to personal liability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can get caught. It's not going to happen very frequently, but uh, it's something where you can be held liable in a court of law. So tell the truth about your own cybersecurity practices. Don't mislead your investors. And if you want to avoid any type of liability, then try to prevent your company's information from being stolen by uh, bad cyber actors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of things to go go into that whole uh, risk analysis, right? (laughs) Right, and these are not easy decisions. Uh, It's very expensive to take the types of measures that would prevent a solar winds type incident from happening in the first place. All of us want to cut corners. I mean, that's why we drive five miles an hour above the speed limit. Yeah, We think we're not going to get caught. Uh, we'd like to get somewhere faster, but life has a way of catching up with you. Yeah. And in these types of circumstances where the worst does happen, uh, the cyber attack has caused a lot of uh, pain and hardship for the victims, then somebody's got to be held legally liable, mm-hmm. uh, at least in theory. Yeah. And uh, here that so far seems to be falling on those who had intimate knowledge of the cybersecurity practices of solar winds. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of lots of security executives watching this case closely. I would imagine. Yeah, probably with a a, a tinge of fear uh, in in seeing that one of their uh, co patriots here has um, potentially a, a legal problem on their hands. Yeah. All right. Well, again, uh, that is from uh, SC Magazine. We will have a link to that and both of our stories in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us or a topic you'd like for us to cover, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Malarkey. He's from a company called Titania. And we were talking about the Civil Fraud Initiative, uh, some uh, efforts going uh, forward in the federal government. Here's my conversation with Matt Malarkey. I think in order to sort of better understand what the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative is, we kind of need to take a step back and look at sort of how did we get here? Mm. And I think the first thing to understand is that um, we've seen now consecutive government administrations paying more attention to and and sort of seeing cybersecurity as more of a priority, both within the government itself, but also within its supply chain. And I think that, well, historically, there's been an approach which has been to kind of allow contractors in the US government supply chain to self-attest to their compliance. And what we've seen over the decades is that self-attestation has not been working. And so um, the government is now sort of, I guess, flexing its muscle and sharpening its teeth. And so the introduction of the CCFI is really a reflection of that. And so can you give us some, some insights here? What exactly is included in it? So through the CCFI, what the, the DOJ is looking to do is it's firstly looking to build resiliency across the U.S. government as well as the private sector. It's looking to hold government contractors and grantees who are doing business with the government um, accountable to their cybersecurity requirements. And then it's also trying to ensure that those companies and contractors that are adhering to their requirements are, no, are not penalized or punished for, for, for doing so, so that the playing field is level. And so what kind of mechanisms will they have at their disposal here to, uh, to ensure that what they're looking for actually comes to pass? Yes, that's a good question. So what they're doing is they're basically enabling the the DOJ to, in collaboration with other government departments, start launching, I guess, cases or or, or lawsuits against, in, in this case, particularly the private sector to determine whether or not those government agencies have been deficient in their cybersecurity services or products, or if they've been misrepresenting their compliance with their, their cybersecurity requirements and or if they're failing to monitor or report any breaches that they've um, experienced. And what kind of timeline are we on here for, for something like this going live? Oh, it's it's already gone live. So it was launched back in October, I believe. And even just recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, there was a, um, there was a case in California, in, in a federal court in California, where there was a major ruling um, in favor of the government against um, a large defense contractor. Um, and that came about as a result of a whistleblower um, who had alerted the government to the fact that their employer um, had actually not been complying with their cybersecurity requirements and was knowingly aware of that and yet had continued to do gov- do services or perform services for the government. 
What sort of recommendations are, are you and your colleagues making to the, the folks that you work with in terms of organizations making sure that they are in compliance here? So I think the first thing is that any organizations doing business with the U.S. government, the first thing that they need to do is they need to review and understand, and I stress understand, their current contractual requirements. So they need to look back through their contracts and understand you know, what FAR, FAR clauses are included, what DFARS clauses are included, and understand what, what the ramifications of that are. They then need to understand and they need to be prepared to adapt and update their cybersecurity efforts as those requirements change or as new federal requirements are issued. That, that would be the first thing. Hmm. The second thing is that they need to ensure that their, that their compliance with those requirements is not a static effort. I recall some of you, the other guests that you've had on this on this podcast have mentioned the fact that you know compliance should be perceived as an ongoing process. It should not be just a one-off thing and one-off tick box exercise. And so uh, organizations should be performing gap analysis and, and compliance assessments against their requirements on an ongoing basis. And then finally, I would say that they need to be documenting all of their efforts. They need to have evidence such that they can use this to support assurance claims, but also to help them better understand where they actually need to, I guess, provide or dedicate remediation efforts. And I suppose it's safe to say that this is the shape of things to come going forward here. I mean, this this sort of scrutiny is what we can expect from the federal government from, from here on out. I think so. I, I think that you're absolutely right, that there's just going to be continued increased scrutiny. Um, the DOD released a report, I think just last week, um, where the DOD Inspector General stated that uh, cybersecurity within the defense industrial base is being applied inconsistently and how that's just simply not cannot be tolerated. So we're going to see greater uh, focus on, on cybersecurity within, within the supply chain. And the DOD has actually been quite forward-leaning in this area. And through the introduction of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, and I recognize that the, the Biden administration performed a review of that program and has since suggested some updates, which I think have been generally welcomed. Um, but this is going to start putting the onus on, on government contractors to now proactively assess assess their compliance with their known requirements, remediate those requirements, and to be performing this as an ongoing process. In terms of, of the tone between the, the contractors and the Department of Defense, has the has it been collaborative? Has it been adversarial? How are the, the two sides coming at this? I think, by and large, it initially, I think, kind of rocked the defense industrial base when it became clear that as part of the CMMC program that all defense contractors who handle federal contracting information and controlled unclassified information would be subject to mandated third-party audits. That did not go down very well within the defense industrial base. But I think that there's been a recognition that more needs to be done. And it's been interesting sort of seeing and hearing much of the discourse within the DIB, where some, some elements are absolutely in favor of increased scrutiny on the, on the supply chain, because that makes, I guess, in essence, the supply chain stronger. But then there are others who have been saying, well, actually, at what cost? And the idea being that this might actually put many, many small businesses out, out of business. So it's been interesting, you know, sort of seeing the discourse and seeing how these kind of uh, differing elements have been engaging with each other. To what degree has this been retroactive? In, in other words, 
I can see if I'm uh, a contractor and I am uh, bidding on a project, uh, you know, one that has not been uh, awarded yet, that I can work all of these things into my proposal. Is this being applied to jobs that have already been won? And I guess what I'm getting at is, is, is this been put on the contractors as kind of a, an unfunded mandate? No, sir. So it doesn't apply retroactively. Mm. So it will it will only apply for for new uh, new contracts or contracts that are up for for renewal, and it, it can be inserted. And any and any requirement will be inserted into the contract between the government and the contractor. But it will not apply retroactively. Ben, what do you think? I found this interview to actually be somewhat promising. I mean, I think the federal government is taking a more proactive role in uh, trying to ensure cybersecurity best practices among companies that contract with the federal government. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I find that encouraging. I think the question, as, as it was indicated in the interview, is how strong are the enforcement mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the overall trend of trying to ensure that those who contract with the federal government are not subjecting uh, the general public to, to significant risk is a promising trend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting uh, to see, as you say, uh, some of these standards being raised you know, um, by necessity <laughs> right. I, uh, and proactively, you know, I, I, I guess you and I talk often about how slowly the wheels turn, particularly at the federal level. So as you say, it's encouraging to see some, some activity, dare I say, action happening at this level. Yeah. And it's born out of necessity. It's not just the general risk of cyber incidents. And obviously now, uh, with some of the geopolitical events going on, it's the risk of nation states committing cyber attacks. Yeah, I think that threat is very real. Uh, the first target of a foreign adversary is going to be our government. Uh, the government itself might be difficult to attack. They might have proper security protocols. Uh, so the next best thing is those who contract with the federal government and might have access to critical data. Uh, and so I think given what's going on in the world, it's wise that we are taking these proactive steps. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Matt Malarkey from Titania for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>